Okay, you guys ready for a bomb? <laughs> the first new question tonight is going to spin your head. If anything was politically incorrect or explosive, it's going to be this question. And I love this about Inner Circle because people are not afraid to ask these sorts of questions. The Inner Circle, please do not explode. The Inner Circle, this is a nice person. Listen to this question. Does the Rav have any practical advice for making one's spouse seem more attractive than they really are? Besides for focusing on their good qualities, how can I make my spouse more attractive in my eyes without actually changing their appearance? I'm not a shallow person, and looks certainly aren't everything, but sometimes I struggle in this area. Thanks in advance. Okay, now, how many people wanted to ask that question and didn't have the guts to ask the question? Okay, so, like this. There is so, so much hidden in this question. I'm going to take it apart piece by piece. We'll see how many lessons we can extract here. The very first line, how do you make someone more attractive than they are, implies that there are objective standards of beauty. That is a fragile argument, at best. Okay, back in 1977, there was a historian, Anne Hollander, who wrote this in the New York Times. Such an insightful, insightful woman. She said, the 20th century, I'm quoting Anne Hollander, the 20th century has been trained in more stringent schools of visual economics. She's talking about um, how, who we're attracted to. She says, in the past 50 years, taste in physical beauty has shown a marked rejection of bodily opulence, or to put it bluntly, fat. Why should this be so? The look of actual human bodies obviously changes very little through history. But the look of ideal bodies changes a great deal all the time. And so the perception of corporeal facts is edited to match. For about 400 years, roughly between 1500 and 1900, bodily weight and volume for both men and women had a strong visual appeal. There were variations according to country and century in the standard of good looks, but in general, it was considered not only beautiful, but natural to look physically substantial. In conventional art, not only refined courtiers and servants and rural laborers were depicted as solidly fleshy, clad in thick clothing and taking up a good deal of space. Among the desirable qualities of upper-class elegance, slimness did not figure except as the property of hands, feet, or noses, and occasionally the feminine waist, all by itself, but independent of other proportions. As for bones, they were totally banished from the idealized female. Rubens, I have to just give some background here. Hollander here is referring to Sir Peter Paul Rubens. He lived 1577 to 1640. He is considered the most influential artist of the Flemish Baroque tradition. So Hollander writes, Rubens caught the taste for physical plump plumpness on the rise, so to speak, and gave it a whole new dimension. 
Rubens's glorification of flesh was an outgrowth of the Renaissance belief in the almost limitless possibilities of the human mind and body. In the visual arts, human importance seemed most appropriately expressed in terms of solidity, of undeniable substance and weight. Thinness of the body came to connote poverty and the weakness of disease in old age. It also suggested spiritual poverty and moral insufficiency. A thin body might have been appropriate in the Middle Ages when the church emphatically preached the unimportance of the flesh, but by the 16th century, cultivated opinion had acquired a more worldly view of corporeality. So a thin body looked not only unlovely, but unliberated. Any skinniness or boniness found in youth was an indication of undesirable morbidity. Not only a lack of good fortune and muscle, but a lack of will and zest. Okay, quote unquote. That is the end of this, this piece from Hollander that I'm quoting to you. Okay, Hollander is echoing the popular evolutionary basis for explaining physical attraction. Now, how does that work? It posits all people are essentially the same insofar as we're all just sophisticated animals programmed by selfish genes to procreate for the sake of progeny. We are like every other animal, insofar as we find attractive those potential mates who are most fertile or most capable of protecting and feeding our offspring. When the science of the day believed that people who were fat were healthier or wealthier, then that was attractive. And when science changed its mind, so did the culture of physical beauty. That is Hollander's position, what I would call the evolutionary basis of attraction. By the way, there, there are probably some observant Jews who believe this too. They probably also think that what drives human attraction is this sort of evolutionary force, that men want women who are fertile and women want men who can, who can protect them and pay for their, for their children's costs. But is that sort of approach, that evolutionary approach, really the Torah's explanation for what makes somebody attractive to us? I don't think so. Consider the following revolutionary passage, one of the most famous discussions in the entire Talmud. It's one that many, many religious Jews know by heart. It's found in Tractate Ketubot, Ksuvas, page Ted Zion Ahmed Base. starts, page 16b, goes over to 17a. It starts off with the famous line, sung, Tanarabanan, our rabbis taught, Ketzad Meraktim Lifneakala. How do you dance in front of a bride? Immediately, a disagreement breaks out in the study hall. Beit Shammai Omrim, Beit Shammai says, the house of Shammai said, Kala Kamochi, 
Tell it like it is. Describe the lady exactly as she is. No lying. Beit Hillel Omrim, Beit Hillel says, No. Kala na'ev chasuda. You always say, She's a beautiful and gracious bride. Amr lehen Beit Shammai lebeis Hillel. Beit Shammai turned to Beis Hillel and said, How can you say that every woman is a beautiful and great, gracious bride? What happens if, if she's handicapped or blind? Then you're going to say to her, what a beautiful and gracious, gracious bride? How can you say that? You're a religious Jew. A Torah Amr, the Torah says, You have to distance yourself from lies. You're clearly lying. Beit Shammai objects. Be honest. Amr lehem beis hil lebeis Shammai. Beis Hillel responded to Beis Shammai. Really? Ledivrechem. According to you, Beis Shammai, tell it like it is. Mishalakach mechach ra minashuk. If somebody goes to the market and they buy some product there that you don't like, yishibchenu be'enav o yiganenu be'enav. Do you praise that product in, in, the, in the purchaser's eyes or do you make light criticize the product in the, in, in the purchaser's eyes. So everybody knows the halach of Yomer, you're supposed to, you're supposed to compliment that purchase and say what a good deal he got and what, how wonderful it is, that what a beautiful product. So, what just happened? The halach is exactly like Beis Hillel. The halach is that if somebody buys a product, they're happy with it. You say to them, what a wonderful product. But Beishamai had a legitimate objection. Beishamai said, Midvar Shekhar Tirchak, how can you lie? The Torah says you can't lie. So the Gemara explains. It's not a lie. Mikan, Amrochamim. From this insight of Beis Hillel, that you praise a product when someone found it, 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 it beautiful in their eyes. Our sages said, You have to learn to get out of yourself and into somebody else's head. Rashi explains, You have to learn how to provide each person with what he finds beautiful. This is the source. The Talmud here rejects the idea that there is any standard of objective physical beauty. The example Beis Hillel gives is astounding. He says some people aren't going to be bothered by a physical disability. They're not going to be bothered by blindness. That's, that's certainly true. Those characteristics may have no bearing on how attractive someone is to me. Or <laughs> they may even be part of a profile that attracts me. Like Rashi said, Lasod ish ish kirtsono. The example he gave a blind person. Blind people live in the most extraordinary world. Many blind people feel that people who are sighted are missing out. They live in a, in a, in a smaller world, a lesser world. You can't know 
you really can't know what is objectively beautiful to that particular soul. Okay, now, let's see if we can step back and understand what's happening here. Here, in this Talmudic passage, God explains that what turns on a human being could be driven by an external locus, one's culture, screaming in one's ear, or by an internal locus, one's own genuine and completely unique identity. To the extent that I am deaf to my own internal voice and I blind myself to my own identity, then there's no other option. My culture is going to dictate what I will find attractive. It'll be fat people between the 17th and 19th centuries and skinny people in the 20th and 21st century. It'll be blonde, blue-eyed people in a locale where that is rare, and it'll be people with brown hair and brown eyes in a locale where that is rare. If I have no internal locus, then everything will be determined by external voices. But the Torah says that there is an alternative. Each of us Every single one of us is a unique manifestation of God, an aspect of God's image that has never before been expressed in history and will never again be expressed in the future. That's true not only about our fingerprints, but about every aspect of our true identity. To the extent that I become aware of my uniqueness and I bring it forth, I'm going to have unique preferences, even unique aesthetic tastes. Basil teaches us that there isn't a single human being on the planet who isn't attractive to at least one other person. And therefore, it isn't a lie to declare that every bride is beautiful and gracious. She is to the right person, assuming her husband chose her using his internal locus of attraction he is turned on by some of the very characteristics that are going to turn other people off. So just to zoom out for a second, if the forces of evolution determine attraction, then there will be some objective standards for beauty. But if the divine image is the primary driver, then since every person is a unique creation, each one of us has a different aspect of God inside of ourselves, then the more we get in touch with that, the more what we find attractive will be unique. If that's the case, then the whole question of how do you make someone more attractive than they really are <laughs> makes no sense. This person is attractive. She is perfection. Perhaps not according to the secular culture around me that rejects this to our perspective. Perhaps not to me yet because I haven't gotten in touch with myself. But she is perfection to the other half of her neshama. Assuming he gets in touch with himself and brings forth enough of his uniqueness and potential to establish his own standards for what constitutes beautiful. I'm just thinking about You've met elderly couples where the man thinks his wife is the sexiest thing that's ever walked the streets. 
He's talking about a 90-year-old lady. She does not look like she belongs as a cover girl. And he thinks she's the most spectacular thing ever. What standard is he using? What is he plugged into? What does he see? He's not blind. He's unique. He's different than you. And that's why he looks at her and says, wow, 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 wow. By the way, the same is true about younger people. You look, how could that guy marry that girl? What does he see? He's in touch with himself. Okay, that's my first observation. Here's a second one. We go from slightly controversial to extremely controversial. The Inner Circle member didn't identify him or herself. But I, I just want you, to, I want, I want you to think about something for a minute. Be honest with me. Be honest. If you don't have to be honest with me, be honest with yourself. If you would put aside woke political correctness and answer honestly, would you say that this question was submitted by a man or a woman? Be honest. Who is more likely to express concern that one's spouse isn't attractive enough? Okay, I get it. It's hard to be honest with other people. It's sometimes even hard to be honest with ourselves, right? In the mid-21st century, it is, there are such consequences for answering this question honestly. But you don't have to tell anyone else whether you think the person submitting this question is a, is a man or a woman. Just be honest with yourself. Is the person asking this question a male or a female? Okay. So God passed this wisdom down to us 3,300 years ago. It's a passage in Tractate Kedushin, page 41a. I want to I read through this passage with you because it is so profound. You start to see the, the wisdom buried in the Talmud. It's just unbelievable. The Mishnah offers the following ruling. This is the law. By the way, you can see here how from Jewish law, you can extract enormous life wisdom. The Mishnah says, A man can betroth a woman by himself or by means of his agent. He can become engaged to somebody by himself or through an agent. Similarly, a woman can become betrothed by herself or by means of her agent. Okay, end of Mishnah. Seems pretty simple. The Gemara doesn't let anything pass. So the Gemara starts by questioning the need for this seemingly extraneous halacha stated in the Mishnah. Once the Mishnah stated that you can betroth a woman by means of an agent, they don't have to be there, then is it necessary to state that a man can also betroth a woman by himself? Obviously he can do it by himself. If he can even do it through an agent, for sure he can do it by himself. So Rav Yosef explains what's going on in the Mishnah. He says, the Mishnah writes both halachot, that is, you can do it yourself or by an agent, to teach you that the betrothal is valid either way. But even though it's valid either way, it is more fitting that the mitzvah be performed by the man himself rather than by his agent. And then Rav Yosef explains why he thinks it's more fitting that the man betroth the woman by himself instead of through an agent. He says it's like the story of Rav Safra. Rav Safra 
would uh, cook the meat for Shabbos or salt the fish for Shabbos himself rather than allowing his domestics um, uh, help in the house to do it for him. He actually would, would do it himself. He wouldn't allow the, 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 the maids or, 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 or butlers to take care of this. Why? Because it was a mitzvah to prepare for the Shabbos and he wanted to do the mitzvah himself. In the same way, Rav Yosef says, it's a mitzvah for a man to betroth the woman himself because it's a mitzvah to get married and so he should do it himself much better than having somebody do it for him. That's Rav Yosef. However, others in the Gemara disagree and they say, no, it's not a question of that it's better if he do it himself. It's actually forbidden for him to betroth the woman through a, an agent. Why? Rav Yehuda said that he heard from the Talmudic sage Rav that he cannot betroth the woman unless he sees her. Why? Because maybe if he saw her, he wouldn't be attracted to her. And then he would end up violating the verse in the Torah that says, Ve'ahavta l'recha kamocha. Leviticus 19.18, you should love your neighbors yourself. Okay, this is profound. Here, the Talmud is saying, the woman wants to be attractive to her husband. She has a right to be attracted to her husband. When the man marries her without having seen her, and then he ends up not attracted to her, he's being cruel to her because she deserves to be married to a man who's attracted to her. So, don't, don't do to somebody else what you wouldn't want done to yourself. You wouldn't want to be unattractive in your spouse's eyes. So, therefore, don't, don't do that to a woman. And therefore, to avoid that sort of cruelty, it's actually forbidden. By the way, we rule this way. It's forbidden for a man to become engaged to a woman unless he's seen her. Okay, so that sounds great, except now you have a big problem. If there's a prohibition of getting engaged to a woman through an agent, then why does the, the Mishnah say that he can do it by himself or through an agent? So, the Rav Yosef explains, when it said it can be done through himself or through an agent, it wasn't really speaking about the man. It was speaking about the woman. A woman can become in, uh, betrothed by herself or by means of her agent. That is, it's her agent. He can engage, he can become engaged to her through her agent. That's what it was talking about. Okay, so now Reish Lakish goes on and Reish Lakish says, what is the difference here between a man and a woman? A woman can actually become engaged through her agent. That is, she doesn't have to see the guy. A man has to see the woman. So Reish Lakish says, I'll tell you what the difference is. He says, women have a saying. It's better to sit as two bodies, that is, it's better to be married, than to sit alone. Meaning, a woman's attraction to her husband 
is driven more by how wonderful he is in the relationship, while men's attraction is driven more by a spouse's external appearance. Okay. This psychological sex difference is a nightmare for men and for women. Men are terrified that their wives will put the whole emphasis on the quality of the relationship and then let their bodies drift drastically from what their spouse finds attractive. And women are terrified that their husbands will put the whole emphasis on how their bodies look and be dissatisfied even if their relationship is spectacular. Okay, so it's obvious what's going on here. The Inner Circle member who wrote that he's so concerned about uh, the, who wrote that this inner circle member is so concerned about the spouse's appearance is probably a man. And he is expressing a fundamental concern that most men have. He doesn't want to seek physical beauty elsewhere. He wants to feel his wife is the most physically beautiful woman in the world. It sounds like he doesn't feel that way and it causes him pain. Okay, now this guy's intelligent enough to know that conveying that to his wife Right? Explaining that he's disappointed with her appearance is like throwing a bucket full of gasoline on hot coal. So he's not going to do that. But he's writing in and asking, what can he do? So, practically, at least for tonight, I'm going to make three recommendations. The first is, it helps to take steps to discover and become yourself. To bring forth your specific image of God. The more unique you become, then the less you'll be driven by the standards of your culture and the more you'll be drawn to your other half, both in soul and in body. That, that's part of the reason that our Godolim, Jewish leaders who we admire most, are known not only for their uniqueness, and they're all so unique, it's hard to believe that our Godolim all belong to the same religion, they're so unique. But it's not just they achieve the pinnacle of uniqueness, they also achieve the pinnacle of Shalom Bais. That's one of the ways who we know how God lives. These two, uniqueness and Shalom Bais, being crazy about your spouse, that goes hand in hand. Becoming yourself, becoming who Hashem created you to be, is not a small project. It's not something I can guide you in during a few minutes on a conference call. But I'm telling you, it's something you've got to speak to your Rav about. It's going to be the key to your Shalom Bais. These old men who are crazy wild about a woman who doesn't belong on the cover of a magazine, it's because... They're not judging based on the standards of 21st century America. They have their own internal picture of who they are and what's fit for them, what matches them. And they're wild crazy about the way your body looks, not just about her soul. There's a project that's got to become the center of your life. And that's not just because it, it guarantees that you'll be maximally attracted to your wife. It's because your whole eternity depends on it. You need to become you. 
now, here in this world, or you won't be very much in the next world. There's a second thing you can do too. I'll give you a second piece of advice. Along with focusing on your internality, turn away from those images the culture dictates that you should find attractive. When the Torah tells us to guard our eyes, it isn't because God wants the privacy of pleasure. It's because it's difficult enough hearing your own internal voice, that is, establishing your own standards for attractiveness, without advertisements and internet images screaming at you. If you want your locus of attraction to shift from external standards to internal standards, quiet down the external voices. As difficult as it may be, and it is difficult, try to look less at other women. Okay, there's a third piece of advice that's offered by the Torah. It comes out of an interesting Talmudic passage in Tractate Nita 31b. The Gemara there says like this. The Gemara says, Tanya, Hayat Rabbi Meir Omer. Rabbi Meir asked a bomb question which every young couple asks. Why did the Torah set up a system of halacha, a, a Jewish legal system, that prohibits married couples from being intimate seven days out of the month? Why? Why did the Torah make her forbidden seven days a month? And the Talmud gives a fascinating answer. Because he will become accustomed to her. Habituated. And then she won't be interesting to him anymore. Amra Torah. Therefore, God comes and says, Teitmeya Shiva Yamim. Let her be forbidden to him seven days. So he will be so excited about her when they get back together again, like the day that they first got together after waiting for so long, the first time they ever experienced intimacy, it'll be like that every single month. Tremendous psychological insight. Here the Torah is hinting that Routine breeds boredom. Routine is the enemy of excitement. How do you filter routine out of your marriage? That's really what you need to do. How do you filter routine out of your marriage? Creativity. You got to be creative. You have to be aggressive. For example, every couple is required to have a weekly date. Absolutely required to have a weekly date. But it doesn't always have to be the same time. It doesn't have to be the same park bench or the same restaurant. You don't have to order the exact same food. Okay, now I recognize work creates some restrictions, kids create some restrictions, but work around those givens to create variety. And do the same in the most intimate details of your romantic life. The more you shake things up, the more interesting things will be for both of you and the more affection you'll feel. Like the Talmud says, The more that you shake it up, then the more interesting and, and exciting things become, and then the more affection 
flows forth. This is not to, to undermine anything that I've said, the first two pieces of advice that I gave, but this is also an element. You guys are both creative. Don't throw all the responsibility on your spouse. Jump in there. The two of you come up with spontaneous, interesting ideas. Don't let your relationship become routine. I hope you liked that answer from Rabbi Kellerman. If you'd like to listen to more questions and answers and ask your own questions, as well as listen to brand new material that Rabbi Kellerman is producing right now, check it out at lawrencekellerman.com. You put in your name and email address and we'll send you free lectures from all the new material Rabbi Kellerman has been publishing. Let us know if you have any questions. Info at lawrencekellerman.com.